The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, I've got a stack of announcements up here. That's real loud. <laughs> as soon as I start speaking, three people jump back there, and that's coming down. Okay. All right, a couple of announcements. We're still looking for volunteers for the nursery not to be in there as a kid, okay? No, 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 no reversing yourself. You can sign up for one Sunday per month if you feel a little bit intimidated by the little rugrats. This is for the purpose of helping the teacher not to teach. I was told not to tell you there were six little rugrats in there this last week, and the teacher felt a little outnumbered, but I thought, well, that'll scare everybody off. Then this Saturday we're going to have our second family night. Beginning at 5.30, there will be free dinner, snacks, and fun. And we'll be showing the movie Incredible Creatures That Defy Evolution. So bring the kids. That'll be good for them and as well as uh, friends and neighbors, anyone else. Your secular biology teacher from the ninth grade. That'll be fine. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. So we'll... Be ready and prepare to study the Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much that we have this opportunity to study Your Word, to be refreshed by the teaching that's here, to be reminded of Your control in history, that when we live in the midst of chaotic circumstances, we know that You have a plan and a purpose and You are in control And whether those chaotic circumstances are historical or whether they're personal, we know that we can trust you and rely upon you that you have a purpose for what things are going on in the world around us. Now, Father, as we study the life of Joseph this evening, we pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened and that we would be able to take home some key points of application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're in Genesis 37. Genesis 37, the last Toledot, the last section in Genesis, the life of uh, Joseph. It is the Toledot of Jacob, actually, but the primary character is Joseph, although he is not the only focus. Remember the last time when we looked at uh, the Toledot of Isaac, the primary focus was really Jacob. He wasn't, uh, he was more prominent in that section than Joseph is in this section. We also have some uh, vignettes on Judah and uh, Jacob plays a more substantial role in this section than Isaac did in the previous section, but it is one of the most well-known and beloved sections of Scripture, especially when we deal with the issues of of Joseph and his life. I think there are many things that go on in Joseph's life life that resonates with all of us. Now, just as a reminder, as I go through Genesis, I have been taking these sections, these toledotes, that's the Hebrew word, that is translated, these are the records of, these are the generations of. And as we come to each one, I try to do an overview of the whole section. I do that in my personal study just to get a whole grasp of the, the, whole, the next section as a whole. And then uh, we'll do that, get the bird's eye view of this section of Scripture. And then we will uh, start next time doing a little more in-depth uh, exposition and study of Scripture. As you go through this passage, this section from Genesis 37 through 50, some uh, 14 chapters, the key idea that just jumps out at you is a principle that is laid out in a very succinct promise in Romans 8.28. So you might want to turn with me in your Bibles as we get started to Romans 8.28. And there's a few exegetical things we need to clean up in Romans 8.28 to make sure we understand what is said and what is not said in Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is a familiar promise that many of you have memorized. If you haven't, you should. It is a tremendous comfort, especially when things seem to be chaotic 
when crises loom and we think that everything's out of control and we're praying to God and we think that God somehow is more concerned about what's going on on the uh, Israeli-Lebanon border or in Iraq than he is with uh, our individual lives. Romans 8.28 reads, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, to understand this promise, we don't just stop there. We have to understand the next two verses. The next verse says, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, we'll come to verse 30 in a minute. But first of all, we have to go back and make sure we understand uh, what 28 is talking about and a little corrected translation. We have this phrase, all things work together. And I pointed this out down here in the bottom. In the, the Greek word for all things is the word panta in the Greek. That's actually the form that's there. It's the accusative plural of the Greek word pas, which is the word for all. Now, it's important to note the grammar here because panta is the accusative plural. And we all know that if you're going to have a plural subject, see in the English translation, all things is the subject of the verb work together. And so we have a plural subject, but the problem is in the Greek, the verb is sunergo, which is, as I've highlighted there, a third-person singular verb. Now, anybody who's gotten past eighth-grade grammar knows that you've got a violation of subject-verb agreement here. If you've got a plural verb and a, I mean, a plural subject, and a, you can't have a plural subject with a singular verb. So this is a poor translation. The all things, the panta is the accusative, therefore the direct object of the verb, and it should be, the word order at least, should be reversed. So it should read, he works all things together for good. Now, the he comes from the fact that the verb sunergo is a third person singular. First person singular is I. Second person singular is you. Third person singular is he, she, or it. There is no stated subject in this verse. Now, I know some of you have heard this translated, that we know that God works all things together for good. But the proper noun theos in the nominative case, which is what you need for a subject, is not found in 98% of the manuscripts. It's only found in a very few manuscripts, and thus it is rejected by almost every textual critic as being a legitimate reading. Not only is it not in the critical text, which is the older is better text, the Nestle-Alon text, it's not in the majority text. And when the Nestle-Alon text and the majority text agree, that's got to be gold because they operate on completely uh, opposing theories of textual criticism. So if both of their views on, on textual criticism, that is the science of dealing with uh, alternate readings, if both of their views come to the same conclusion, then that's probably a pretty, pretty solid basis for rejecting a reading. Uh, it was the, the noun theos was probably added in a couple of early manuscripts simply as a scribal annotation to clarify who the he is. And then when somebody copied his, uh, his manuscript, they copied his notes in as if they were the text. And that's, um, that's how that ended up in just a few manuscripts. There's only about a half a dozen uh, manuscripts that contain that reading, and they are neither the majority of manuscripts nor are they the best of manuscripts. So... Now that we've correctly translated the verse, we know that he works, that he being God, he works all things together for good. Who does he work it all together for good for? Or did I say that right? For whom does he work all things together for good? Is it just for those who love God? See, that's the first qualification there. He works all things together for good, first of all, to those who love God. Now, not all believers Love God is very clear from a number of passages. For example, in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you don't keep my commandments, the implication is you don't love me. Uh, John, 
emphasizes this several times in the in the in First John that the the person who loves God does his word, keeps his commandments. There are many believers who are in rebellion, who are disobedient. Obviously, they do not love God. Loving God is, as we've learned many times, is not a matter of emotion. It's not a matter of feeling. It's not a matter of jumping up and down, clapping your hands, and and uh, feeling good because some manipulative worship leader, that's the contemporary term, They've forgotten that the pastor is the worship leader by teaching the word. The, that the <clears throat> that it's not emotion that is the criterion for loving God. Loving God is defined by our response to doctrine and our application of doctrine in the life. So first of all, the the, the verse states we know that He works all things together for good to those who love God. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't say to those who love God, period. There is a a further development of the thought. It's not just for believers who are advancing uh, in in doctrine and growing in maturity, but it's also for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, to whom does that clause refer? Ah, that's why we have to look at the context. Who are those who are called according to his purpose? Now we start getting a delineation of a of, of a progression in the uh, what it, the theologians refer to as the order of salvation or the ordo salutis in verse 29, and we'll just without going through the details of what all these things refer to, I just want you to note the progression. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his God, that mean, to the image of his Son. That means that God has a destiny for us. He has a goal. He's a goal-oriented God who has a, a purpose in saving us, and that is so that we be like His Son. That's what predestination means. It doesn't have the idea that God chooses some for damnation and some for eternal life. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's our destiny. We're to be like Christ. So the Holy Spirit's going to work throughout your entire life to conform you to Christ's image, to teach, to teach you and to produce in you the character of Christ. Verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined. So you see what you have. The first step is foreknew. The second step is predestined. These he also called. That is the proclamation of the gospel. Whom he called, these he also justified. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, who gets glorified at the rapture? Real simple. Every church-age believer gets glorified. Why? Because every church-age believer is justified. When you believe in Christ, you're justified. So everybody who's justified gets glorified. Let's back it up one more. Everybody who's justified also was what? Called. So the term calling, those whom he called, as Paul goes through this progression here, he's talking about the same group of people. Now, among those who are glorified, you're going to have two groups of believers. Those who were faithful and advanced and grew in their spiritual life, and those who were unfaithful and who will lose almost everything at the judgment seat of Christ except for their eternal life. They'll still go into heaven. So the called include two groups of people. The justified includes two groups of people. The glorified includes two groups of people, those who love God and advance to maturity and those who are failures in the Christian life. So therefore, when we look back here at Romans 8.28, that last clause to those who are the called according to his purpose refers to every single person who puts their faith alone in Christ alone, whether they are an advancing, maturing believer or whether they are a rebellious, carnal believer. I heard a phrase this last week when I was up in Connecticut. I've just got to develop this into a doctrine. Somebody was talking. They said, well, you know, their sin nature just got really rambunctious. And I thought, well, you know, that, that really communicates carnality. They have a rambunctious sin nature. So we'll have to develop that as we go along. But... Uh, Romans 8.28 lays out the principle of divine providence, that the events that take place 
in a believer's life are not the products of random chance. They don't just happen. It's not just because you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But behind the scenes, God is working to bring about all of these different circumstances. He doesn't do it in violation of your volition or your responsibility, but He does it in order to produce something. And that's the emphasis in verse 29, is that He is using all of these various circumstances to teach us and to train us so that our character is conformed to His image. And the Old Testament illustration of this passage is really the life of Joseph. As we get into Romans 8.30, as I pointed out here in the slide, you have this progression in these, in these uh, verbs, for new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. They all refer to the same group. And that group includes both uh, carnal believers as well as spiritual believers. So God is, if you're a carnal, rebellious believer, God's working all things together for good in your life. Uh, whether you like it or not, he is still working to try to uh, discipline you, try to get your attention, try to get you back in fellowship so that he can continue to work in sanctifying you and conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the New Testament promise that is given to every believer. But the Old Testament truth is exemplified, as I just pointed out, in the life of Joseph. And this becomes clear in two key sections of the Joseph narrative. As we read through this, we're all familiar, or most of us are familiar, with the story of Joseph as a 17-year-old who has really angered his brothers. I mean, you've got to really do something to make your brothers all your brothers so angry at you that they want to conspire to kill you. I mean, you have to really get them mad. And he has done that. And and at the last minute, one of the brothers says, well, let's not kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. So they sell him into slavery. And you would think that if that were you, that you would have a heart for vengeance for the rest of your life. You'd get back at every single one of them. And that's part of what we'll see in our study of Joseph is Joseph's spiritual growth as he grows from being a young man who is probably pretty angry at his brothers and feels pretty rejected and and um, uh, by his brothers, and he would have every cause to be angry and bitter towards them. But he comes to understand the principle of Romans 8.28 in his life. And he expresses it on two different occasions. When he first reveals himself to his brothers some years later, when he is the second in command in, in Egypt, and they have come to him for aid and for help, he reveals himself to them. And in, verse, in Genesis 45.5 he says, But now... Do not, therefore, be grieved or angry with yourselves. They're, they're writing a guilt trip in the context, and we'll see that. They are writing a guilt trip. They believe that this whole famine is directed at them and is God's discipline for their what they did to Joseph. And so he says, Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. How many of us would be so magnanimous if uh, our family... Our friends, our loved ones had sold us into slavery. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So not only does this exemplify the fact that that. Uh, Joseph has come to understand the principle, the doctrine in Romans 8.28, but that he has also come to understand the principle of grace orientation and forgiveness towards others as well as impersonal love because he is not holding against them what they have done even though from a human viewpoint perspective he would have every right to do so. Genesis 50.20, he states this in another way, just as succinctly. He says, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. He recognized that even though their motivation was evil, they hated him, 
They were jealous of him. They were envious and they wanted to kill him. And they did everything they could to destroy him. God had a greater plan and he utilized the anger, the resentment, the hatred of his brothers in order to put Joseph in a position where he would preserve the promised seed to Abraham and that he would be the savior and protector of the family. And so rather than harboring bitterness and anger and resentment towards his brothers, he welcomed them and treated them in love and kindness. That gives us a broad framework for understanding the general principles that we're going to be studying as we go through the life of Joseph. Now, as we get into this, we have to be reminded that uh, at the very core of everything from Genesis 12 on is an understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. Everybody knows the three elements of the Abrahamic covenant by now. You ought to say them in your sleep. We have land, seed, and blessing. Abraham was promised a specific piece of real estate, but now what's going to happen is the descendants of Abraham, the descendants, the children of of Jacob, Israel's 12 sons, are going to be taken out of the land, and they are given a promise by God, as we'll see, that God is going to eventually bring them back to the land. He had, in fact, prophesied this and foretold this in uh, earlier in Genesis to Abraham. It is through this seed that he is going to bless all the world. So he's going to take them out of the land providentially to protect them and preserve them from the influence of the Canaanites and the paganism that was surrounded them because these 12 boys aren't exactly spiritual minded, spiritual minded, and they don't want to, uh, and they want to, excuse me, they want to assimilate and just soak up all the paganism and the lifestyle and everything, the thinking of the pagans around them. So God has to remove them from the land in order to protect them. Well, let's fit this section into the context of Genesis. We have these 11 Toledotes. I've had this slide wrong for I don't know how many months. I had 10 Toledotes there. Actually, there's 11 because you have a double usage, which we just saw in chapter 36. The first section of the book deals with the creation, and then in Genesis 2-4 we read, this is what happened to the heavens and the earth. Then you have in 5-1 to 6-8, this is what happened to Adam. 6-9 to 9-29, this is what happened to the descendants of Noah. You have from 10-1 to 11-9, this is what happened to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in 11-10 through 26, it just focuses on what happened to the descendants of Shem, ending with Terah. Then from 11.27 to 25.11, we focused on this is what happened to Terah's descendants, primarily one. The whole focus from that point on is on Abram, later named Abraham. We never hear about Terah again. The focus is all on Terah's son, Abraham. Then we have uh, Toledot, where we deal with the Ishmael, which wraps up some loose ends. Then we have the Toledot of Isaac. This is what happened to the descendants of Isaac. We learn a little bit about Isaac, but it's primarily a focus on Jacob. Then we wrap up some more loose ends, which we did last time when we looked at uh, Genesis 36. And in 36.1 and 37.9, we have uh, double use of the word Toledot related to Esau. And now we come to the last Toledot in Genesis 37.2 to 50.26, this is what happens to the descendants of Jacob. Now, when we look at this structure from 37 to 50, it fits a chiasm. Now, right now, we don't need to worry about all the details of this chiasm. I'm going to give you a little more concise outline in a minute. But the main thing we want to point out in a chiasm, which is based on the Greek letter key, which is like an X, and, it, and if you notice, the, the lines here on the left form the left-hand side of an X. And the focal point in a chiasm is what's in the center. And the center of the Joseph narrative is, chapter, is found in chapter 44 and 45, where Joseph tests his brothers to see if they indeed have learned their lesson. Have they grown? Are they still the same self-absorbed, spiteful, carnal, pagan bunch that they were earlier, and indeed they demonstrate a remorse and regret over how they treated Joseph. There is evidence of that they feel very guilty, 
and uh, that they are honoring of their father and their younger brother Benjamin and at that point Joseph reveals his identity to them that is the center and the center tells us that the focus here is on God's grace and Joseph's understanding of God's grace and forgiveness in relationship to his brothers We'll see that slide again, so you can, if you want to take notes, you can just take some time there. Let's look at just a summary outline of what's happening in the story of Joseph. The overall idea is that God provides for the future of the seed of Abraham through Joseph. And I want you to note when we, when I put the main points of the outline up here for these, these chapters, is that God is the subject. When you read the narrative literature of the Old Testament, when you read Genesis and Exodus, you read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Judges, Joshua, all the different narrative books of the Old Testament, remember that the real hero in the story is not Gideon, it's not Moses, it's not Abraham. The hero is God in all the narrative literature. And if you think about that when you read through the Old Testament, it will help you to, it will transform your understanding of what is going on in the Old Testament. Because what we see here in all these stories is the writers of Scripture are showing how God is working in human history through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So ultimately, God is always the hero. So I try to revamp the outlines in such a way that it reflects the fact that God is the real subject here. Even though he may not be mentioned in the text, God is viewed as the one working behind the scenes. So in these chapters, we see how God is providing for the future of the seed through Joseph. We've already had a look at what these sons are like back in chapter 34 with the Dinah uh, incident and with the uh, rape of Dinah and then uh, <clears throat> Simeon and Levi go in and massacre the, the uh, inhabitants of Shechem. These aren't lovely people. They are young men. They're in their 20s about this time, and they are not oriented at all spiritually. And now they have to face a problem with their next to youngest brother. Jo- uh, Joseph is 17 years old. Benjamin is still in diapers. And God is going to do something that really creates a scenario. It's really interesting to watch this to see how God uh, God knows exactly what to do to push our hot buttons and just to put us in the right situation to to generate certain reactions so that we have to either apply doctrine or reject doctrine. He's just a master at that. He knows exactly what to do. So he does something very unusual in chapter 37. He reveals Joseph's future to him. So I've labeled this chapter, God reveals to Joseph his future position and power. And what he reveals in these two dreams is that Joseph is going to be elevated to a position of authority and power and prestige far above his brothers, and all of his older brothers are going to have to bow down and worship him or obey him. They're all going to be subservient to him. And like many 17-year-olds, he's kind of excited about that because he's probably been beaten up a few times by his older brothers and and uh, mistreated by his older brothers. And so he can't wait to tell his older brothers about these dreams that he has had, that they're all eventually going to have to uh, bow down and submit themselves to his authority. Now, God doesn't reveal his future plans to people in this way Normally, In fact, I don't know of any other case in the Bible where God does something quite like this. He gives these dreams. This isn't a normal thing. God doesn't uh, reveal his plans by dreams. Today we get a lot of folks in charismatic churches who seem to think that they should expect uh, dreams and visions on a normative basis. But if you look at just this, this arena of Scripture from Genesis 37 to, to 50, God gives these dreams to Joseph, but the writer doesn't tell us they're from God. We, we don't really learn that until much later on. So when we first read them, we don't know that they're from God. He just, it's just told that he had these dreams. Uh, later on, we find that God speaks to 
God speaks to uh, Isaac in chapter uh, 40, uh, what is it, about 46. Uh, speaks to Jacob, rather, in uh, chapter 46 to tell him that it's okay to go to Egypt. And outside of this, God really doesn't seem to be mentioned too much. It's a lot like the church age. God is working behind the scenes. So we have a period here where, where we know that God spoke to Jacob in chapter 36, telling him to leave Shechem and go down to Bethel. And God doesn't speak to Jacob again until for, for almost another um, 25 years. Joseph is 17 years old in chapter 37 at the time that uh, Jacob goes down to the land. He's 40, so 23 years goes by, and it's been a couple of years since the incident in chapter 35. So Jacob goes all this time, and God doesn't say much. Some people get the idea that God uh, always spoke to these people on an ongoing basis, but what I want you to catch is that it was rare for God to give direct revelation even to the patriarchs. It happened only four or five times over a period of their whole life, which might be 150 to 180 uh, years. So this wasn't something that was normative even when God was doing it in history. And he's silent during this era because he has given us the completed canon of Scripture. So he reveals himself to Joseph, in, uh, or he reveals to Joseph these dreams, which give him an idea of what his future destiny is going to be. And God does this because He knows full well that Joseph is going to go out and not, and he can't wait to tell his brothers. He's not going to hold back, and he knows exactly what the brothers' reaction is going to be. See, God, this shows you how the sovereignty of God works, where it doesn't violate the free will of man. He he puts the right input into the situation because he knows exactly which buttons to push to create certain reactions in us. Now, you may not understand that unless you have kids. Your kids will learn pretty much how to push which buttons to get a certain reaction. If you're married, your spouse probably knows how to push certain buttons so you, they can get certain reactions. So God does pretty much the same thing here. He puts uh, this into, uh, gives this information to Joseph. He tells his brothers... And the brothers envy him, we're told, in verse 11. His, bro- his father is very upset about this, but he, he's thinking about it. He realizes that God may be behind this. So as we get look at this first chapter in 37, 2 to 36, the focus is on Joseph's dreams. The brothers hate him because of these dreams in verse 4 and verse 8. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 11, they envy him. They are consumed with mental attitude sins towards him. Well, now it's clear that his father has favored him. His father made him a special coat, which indicated uh, the, the special place he had within his father's house. And all of these things came together to just really anger the brothers. So they conspired together in the second half of the chapter that when Joseph comes, they're going to kill him. And so they move from the southern part. I'm going to skip through this a minute. Okay. I'm going to skip through a couple. There. There's the map. It's in the wrong place. They're down here in Hebron. Let's get oriented geographically. Then we can go back and won't have to deal with this slide again. Hebron is here. That is where Isaac and where Joseph and the, the brothers are at the beginning of the narrative. Then, as probably the, the uh, uh, summer came on, it's a drier period, uh, drier time of year, so there's uh, greater forage for the sheep up in the hill country. So they head up north to Shechem and then later to Dothan, which is just about 14 miles to the north of Shechem. And this is where they are when Joseph comes to them in the second part of the chapter. Now let me go back, find my way back through the slides here. There. And he comes to them, and they consp- they've conspired against him. But one of the brothers doesn't want to kill him. So Reuben is the eldest, and he is pictured as being... Uh, concerned about Joseph, and he decides to work behind the scenes 
and he convinces the brothers just to put him into a pit, into literally a cistern. A cistern is a water tank that has been carved out in the sandstone. Uh, though everyone, as soon as I said that, everyone here who went to Israel is smiling because we saw more cisterns. We were sick of cisterns by the time we got through uh, going through through various uh, different places. So they, they would use these cisterns often that were empty as places to put prisoners because no one could get out of the cistern. So they found this cistern. They put him in the cistern. To, uh, and Reuben's idea is, well, I'll go back later at night and I will let, help him escape. But then the brothers got a better idea and they thought they would trade him to a group of Ishmaelites that were coming through. Uh, later they're called Midianites. We'll have to deal with that as we go through the passage. It indicates that, that the descendants of Ishmael were already uh, intermarrying with the Midianites, and so they're, some passages are called Ishmaelites, others Midianites. They're sold for 20 shekels of silver, which was, or he is sold for 20 shekels of silver, which is about a two-year's wage. So slaves were expensive. And then they take Joseph to Egypt, and the brothers uh, work a deception on the father. Now, remember when Isaac, I mean, when Jacob deceived Isaac by putting the uh, goat skin on his arms so he'd act like he was Esau? Well, now the brothers are going to take goat skin, and they're going to dip the, the skin in blood. And dip the, or they're going to kill a goat and they're going to dip the tunic in the blood, rather. And they're going to bring this to the father and deceive him. So we see a certain parallel between the two passages it's brought out and deceive the father into thinking that wild animals killed Joseph. In the meanwhile, Joseph is on his way in shackles to Midian. And then we get an interlude, a strange interlude that deals with Judah, and this probably began, the timing of verse 38 probably began before the events of chapter 37, but they extend for a number of years. It talks about Joseph's original marriage. He has two uh, sons who grow to adulthood, so at least 20, 25 years uh, go by during the period of chapter 38. And the whole point of this is that one of the sons dies, his widow is left, uh, Judah promises him, uh, promises her one of uh, her husband's brothers as a future husband so that she can raise up children to the name of the uh, first husband heir, and he doesn't fulfill the promise. So she goes out and sits by the roadside dressed uh, like a temple prostitute, and he comes along and gives her his promises to give her a, a goat later on, but he gives her as sort of security for the loan his signet cylinder, and which would be on a on a, um, a rope that or that he would have around his neck, as well as his, a cord that he'd have around his neck, as well as his staff. And so he goes in, which is a biblical euphemism for sexual relations, to his daughter-in-law. He doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. They have sexual relations, and lo and behold, natural progression of events, she gets pregnant, comes back, and now she pulls out the uh, signet ring and the cord and the staff and says, uh, this, this was you. So now his, this is because you refused to give me a, a brother to raise up a child according to my husband. And so Judah feels very guilty. He knows it's his own fault. But this whole picture is, this whole chapter is merely designed to point out the uh, corruption in the family. Judah's acting like a, a pagan in the land. This was typical in the fertility religions that were worshiping the uh, Baals and the Asherah, that the way you sort of encourage the go gods to make the land fertile was that you imitated the original sex act of creation. If you remember way back when we studied the original creation, this was the uh, basic idea in pagan mythology is that you had a female goddess and a male goddess and they had sex and that's how the universe was created. So that the idea in the fertility religions was that you would imitate this act and that would encourage the gods to make you uh, prosperous. It was sort of a an early version of the prosperity gospel that's so popular. Uh, 
popular today. Just another form of paganism. So we see God's grace even in this because she gives, uh, she gives birth to twins and they are Perez and Zerah and Perez is in the line of our Lord. He is in the line of Boaz who's going to be one of his great, great, great grandsons who's going to marry Ruth and they're in the direct lineage. They're going to be the great, great grandparents of David and right in the line of the Lord. So this chapter plays it looks out of place but it has a crucial role because there's a contrast between Judah's paganism and Judah's sexual immorality and the very next chapter we're told about Joseph and in contrast to Judah who's just totally uh, compromised uh, Joseph is uncompromised and he becomes a slave in the house of Potiphar and he works there for approximately 10 years if you work out the chronology and Potiphar entrusts him with everything all of his bank accounts, all of his possessions everything because Joseph is such a man of integrity and what we see as a backdrop as a doctrine we'll develop in this, in this whole section is a doctrine of leadership how God trains a remarkable leader in Joseph. So Joseph is a man of integrity. He is trustworthy, and he is apparently very uh, good-looking. In verse 6, we're told that he was handsome in form and appearance, and Potiphar's wife lusted after him. So she tries to get him into a compromising position, and again and again he refuses her advances. Finally, she grabs him and rips his uh, cloak off of him, and he... Uh, refuses to be enticed by her and he runs away but now that she has his cloak she uses it to frame him and accuse him of uh, raping her and so he is put into a prison but he's put into a, a club fed if you know what I mean he's not put in one of the worst prisons he's put in the Pharaoh's prison so that he is with the uh, white collar criminals he's not down with the uh, worst criminals and there and that again we see is the handiwork of God God is working behind the scenes if he had been put in the worst case scenario or if he had been killed for attempted rape which was a capital crime then that would have been the end of the story but God works behind the scenes to make sure that he is put in the right place so that uh, sometime later, two other prisoners are put into the Pharaoh's uh, prison, the butler and the baker of the Pharaoh. For some reason, he is angry with them. Perhaps there was a conspiracy against the Pharaoh, and he wasn't sure which was guilty, but he puts them in there while they're investigating the situation because the first night they're in, they each have a dream. And in that dream, God is showing what is going to happen to each of those individuals, to the butler and the baker. And they come to Joseph and tell him the dream, and Joseph interprets the dream. And when he interprets the dream of the of the first one, of the butler, who is, butler is really a poor translation, he's really the cupbearer. And the cupbearer held a, a, an extremely significant position in the... Um, in the bureaucracy of the ancient world because the cupbearer had to be completely loyal to the king or the pharaoh because he was the food uh, taster. And later on, when you get down to the era of the Persians with Artaxerxes and Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer to uh, Artaxerxes, the cupbearer almost functions as a secretary of state. Uh, The cupbearer has a has a position that is next to the throne. So here we have the the chief uh, butler or the cupbearer who is uh, told that within three days Pharaoh will restore you to your position. But the baker is told that within three days you're going to be executed and you will be hung for the birds to uh, feed off of your body as, as carrion. So obviously they're only in the prison for three days, which indicates that they're there during a period of a preliminary investigation to see who is guilty of some sort of crime within the upper echelons of Pharaoh's court. 
So this comes to pass, and Joseph shows a little weakness here. He's not trusting God. He wants to hurry things up and get out of prison, and he tells the butler, the cupbearer, he says, Remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. Rather than trusting God, he's trusting the Pharaoh. So in this section, chapters 39 to 41, what the focus is is on God raising Joseph to a position of power in Egypt. He is going to go from the uh, prison to the palace in these chapters, and God is preparing him for leadership. He has to take him through the training ground, and for Joseph, the training ground is a prison. Later on, we see something similar with Moses. It took 40 years. Moses was out attending the sheep in Midian. Saul had to be taken down into Saudi Arabia for a few years, and then he went back to Tarsus as a tent maker for a while. We all have to go through periods of training and teaching and maturation before we're ready for God to use us. So God has to take Joseph through this training. It can't be hurried. It can't be rushed. Obviously, he's impatient, and that just shows that he's not yet ready. Finally, a situation comes along. God knows he's ready some two years later, and... Pharaoh has a dream, and actually he has a double dream, which indicates certainty that when somebody had a dream twice, that indicated that God had established this, and the interpretation of the dream was that, was that Egypt was going to have seven years of prosperity, followed by seven years of famine. And that by being forewarned about the seven years of prosperity, they would be enabled to prepare and plan and be ready for those seven years of adversity and the seven years of famine. So when uh, Pharaoh has this dream, he's looking for someone to interpret it. And the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph after two years. And he uh, recommends that the Pharaoh talk to Joseph and uh, Joseph came, was brought to the Pharaoh, and before he came in, he cleaned himself up. It makes a, gee, these little hints in the text. He shaved uh, and changed his clothes. Now, the, the uh, Semites, Jews, usually did not shave. They grew beards and their hair was longer, but the, the pictures we have of the, of the Egyptians is they didn't like hair. They shaved everything. They shaved their heads. They shaved their beards. And the, the pictures you see of the Pharaoh it's with a little beard that hangs down, a little narrow beard, that's a fake beard. So they shaved everything. And so Joseph shows that he has understood a few things about uh, diplomacy and skill and presenting himself properly to the court so he's not offensive to the Pharaoh. And he takes a shower and cleans up and shaves uh, completely to make himself acceptable and presentable to the Pharaoh. The Egyptians were ex- extremely biased against the Semites. A, a, a Ku Klux Klansman in Mississippi is more likely to get involved in a, in a relationship with a black in America than an Egyptian was to be involved in a relationship with a Jew. Let me put it that way. Egyptians wouldn't even eat. They wouldn't even sit in the same room with a Jew. They, they believed the, that the, the Egyptians were the race that was next to God, so everybody else was, was viewed as barbaric. So uh, Joseph comes in. He tells the Pharaoh about his dream, interprets the dream for him, and Pharaoh recognizes, uh, obviously with a little sovereign guidance from God, that uh, the Spirit of God is with this man. Now, verse 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is uh, the Spirit of God? Now, this is don't take that as a technical theological statement that Pharaoh is recognizing that Joseph is filled with the Spirit. Pharaoh is as... He, he's not saved. He has no theological discernment. He's no theologian. All he is recognizing is that that obviously... Joseph has a pipeline to God, and God is giving is, is talking to Joseph, and he's not really talking to Pharaoh. So he recognizes that wisdom that Joseph has, that's, that's, that's all that sentence is saying, is that he has wisdom from God, and he recognizes that. And so he is going to elevate Joseph to the second position in the land. The only person over Joseph would be the Pharaoh himself, 
And we're told in verse 36 that Joseph is 30 years old. Now, he was 17 when he first went out to his brothers. So 13 years have gone by, and he's been in jail for two to four years. So he spent at least nine years with, um, with Potiphar. Now that he is elevated, he takes a wife, a wife who is uh, from the upper crust of Egyptian society. She is the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of An. This was the highest category of priests in Egyptian society. Uh, nobody was more respected than the priests of An. So he is married off to a uh, to seal a, and cement a relationship with the uh, priesthood in Egyptian society. And he has two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. So God, again, is not mentioned in the text, but he is blessing and prospering Joseph. He's put him in a position of prestige, a position of responsibility, where he is going to be able to protect and provide for the family. And he continues to fulfill the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he gives him seed, the next generation. Then they go through the seven years of plenty, and Joseph has a very wise plan that they'll put away 20% of everything during the first seven years, which gives them an overabundance so that they will be able to sell from their abundance to the other nations and countries around when the famine comes. And so the famine comes in chapter 42, and we're told that it it impacted the entire Levant. That's that whole area from the northern part of Africa all the way up around uh, Syria, Palestine, all the way up. There was a tremendous famine, and... Jacob and his sons have run out of food, so Jacob calls upon his brothers, uh, calls upon his sons to go down to Egypt and to purchase grain. And when they come, uh, ten of them come, they leave Benjamin behind, and they go through this uh, dance with Joseph. Joseph disguises himself. He doesn't reveal himself to them. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He has on, he's completely shaved like an Egyptian. It's been 23 years since they saw him. They think he's dead or a slave, so they don't expect it's him. And so he uh, plays a, a game with them. He doesn't tell them who he is. He doesn't reveal himself to them. And he is indeed testing them to see if they have matured and grown uh, during the time, first of all, he puts them in prison for three days. Then he brings them out. Uh, he accuses he, he he accuses them of being untrustworthy. He uh, asks them a lot of questions to find out about their family, to find out about their father, and then he sends them back. But he wants them to bring the younger brother with them, so he keeps a hostage. He keeps Simeon behind uh, and puts him in jail. Uh, binds him, we're told in verse 24, uh, before their eyes, and then he sends him back. But Joseph is dealing with them in grace. They get ready to leave. He sends his steward out to stuff their money back in their grain sacks. And then as they leave, when they come to the first night campground, they start getting into their grain sacks for food, and they find all their money. And they think, oh, now we're going to be accused of thievery. Uh, He's a powerful man. Now he has justification for killing. They're scared to death, and they've got a guilty conscience. So we get a great picture of the effect of guilt that mounts up year after year after year and how it colors their thinking. They go back to their father, and they don't have Simeon with me. And, of course, Jacob is very unhappy. Joseph is gone. Now Simeon is gone, and they want to take Benjamin. Now what's interesting in all of this is that we're told in verse in chapter 43, verse 1, or verse 2, And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt. Now, I always wondered that verse for years. How long did it take him to eat the grain from, from Egypt? I mean, they still have Simeon back there in jail. You know, they're just sitting around, we're going to eat it all up. And if they went down there to get food, they didn't go down there like you run over to Kroger for, for just enough food for the next two or three days. It's a long haul down to Egypt. They got enough food for probably six months, eight months, maybe a year. And they come back and they say, well, we're scared to death to go back, so Simeon's down there. God will have to take care of him. And they eat it up until they're out of food again before they'll do something. 
And so finally they're forced to go back, and now Judah rises to the forefront. We see a real transformation in Judah. Judah becomes a a significant leader among the brothers. And we see that there's been a spiritual maturation in Judah. When we get to the prophecy, which we're all going to uh, love to go through, the prophecy related to Jacob's sons in chapter 49, the first three sons don't get anything. They have uh, demonstrated the kind of character that they have, but it is Judah that is given the first prophecy of blessing that the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah, which, of course, is a uh, prophecy related to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's in 49. We're in 43. We're still in that. uh, Now in the next section, God uses Joseph's position of power to preserve the seed. And in chapter 42 to 47, we see how Joseph is used by God to bring the whole family down from uh, the land down to Egypt so that they can be uh, protected and preserved. So this time, they have to go back. Judah is willing to put himself in Benjamin's place. He said to his dad, if, if, if anything happens to Benjamin, you can take my life. And so we see this, this transformation in his character. So they go back and they take uh, Benjamin with them. And as they go, Jacob says to them, Verse 14, May God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother in Benjamin. If I am bereaved... I am bereaved. So he resigns himself to the situation that he'll lose everything, and then they go down there. Well, as they come, Joseph uh, recognizes they're coming. He devises a plan where he'll have them into his personal palace for lunch. And he goes off, does his work during the day. They're scared to death about the money, so they talk to to Joseph's steward, and he says, No, I had your money. Whatever you found in the sacks, that was something that God gave you. And he never uh, lets on to what really went on. And they sit down for a meal. And Joseph is just overwhelmed uh, with emotion when he sees Benjamin. Two or three times at this dinner, he just has to leave the room. He he's, goes off and he weeps, takes a shower, cleans up, and comes back uh, because he's just overwhelmed with what he sees uh, taking place in the next couple of chapters. And eventually... He reveals himself to his brothers in chapter 45. There's some give and take there that I've skipped over. But in chapter 45, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He identifies himself. And there's a few things there that we'll see when we get into the details of the text that will be surprising. But he reveals himself. And this is where he says in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve a a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And so there is a reconciliation now among the brothers. It is an exemplification of maturity and impersonal love that is more than just an absence of any mental attitude sins, but there is a true affection and reconciliation among the family, one for another. Then the brothers go back to the land to get Jacob, and it's interesting to note how many times from this point on Jacob is now referred to by his second name, Israel. And so Jacob is brought down to Egypt in chapter 46, and on his way out of the land, he goes to Beersheba to offer sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And again, God reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob. And he says, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt. He says that because at one point, Isaac had started to go to Egypt, and God said, don't go to Egypt, prohibited Isaac from going to Egypt. And so Isaac went to Philistines in Gerar. That was in chapter 26. Here at verse 4, God reaffirms the promise that I will make you a great nation there. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make a great nation of you there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. In other words, you'll die in Egypt, but your descendants will be brought back to the land. So Jacob goes down. He's 130 years old. He'll live for another 17 years before uh, he is taken uh, to be with the Lord. 
They go, they go down there. They're given a specific uh, area to live in in Goshen, which is up near the uh, Nile Delta, near the Mediterranean, and there they are honored. In chapter 47, we're told that uh, Joseph goes and tells the uh, Pharaoh about his family. Uh, the Pharaoh makes special provision for them and for the family, and when, when Jacob dies, uh, there, Jake, Joseph is going to be allowed to take him back uh, back to the land. In chapter 48, or excuse me, in chapter 47, the very end, we have an intriguing passage where we get to the end of the famine. Now, Joseph here really executes a remarkable, a remarkable power play. And I think, I wish my knowledge and our information about this period of history were better. We, we don't even know when, uh, what, what pharaoh, which dynasty was in power when Joseph lived. We have no clue. Anybody tells you they know, uh, they, they don't know. Nobody knows. I wish we did. Because what happens is by the book of Exodus, we see that the power of the Pharaoh is just incredible. He owns everything. He, the Pharaoh is Egypt by then. But what we see here in this chapter is how he became Egypt. It was because of Joseph. At the end of the famine, there's no bread in the land. The famine is severe. This is in verse 13. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. So Joseph gathers up all the money that's found in the land of Egypt for the grain which had been bought and brought it into the Pharaoh's house. Well, nobody's got any money anymore. So all they have are their cattle and their sheep, their livestock and their physical possessions. So now Joseph says, well, you just bring in all your livestock and all your physical possessions and I'll give you grain for it. The end of which time the Pharaoh owns all the livestock, all the houses, everything in the land. And then... The people come along, they still are running out of food, and so uh, Joseph says, well, now you just bring your title deeds to your land to the Pharaoh, and I'll give you food. So by the time this is over with, the Pharaoh owns all the land, he owns all the cattle, he owns all the sheep, he owns everything in Egypt. He becomes Egypt himself. This tells us the story of how the Egyptian Pharaoh became the powerful uh, leader that he's pictured as later on in history, but this is earlier. This is, and we'll get into some interesting uh, aspects of Egyptian chronology. And uh, don't, just, you be forewarned, don't buy into, I don't buy any of the traditional uh, chronological schemes. Anything that you read in the uh, Cambridge Ancient History or in most of the standard works on Egyptology, I think is false. I think we've, we've got some real problems, and there are a number of, uh, let's just say, uh, free thinkers in, among Egyptologists that have raised an innumerable questions about the legit- legitimacy of traditional chronology, but it's, such a, it's just such a good old boy network that... Uh, it's hard to break the assumptions that have been there for 200 years. And I think that uh, uh, the whole idea that the 18th dynasty was the dynasty of the Exodus is just completely fraudulent. I don't think the 18th dynasty came around for another couple of hundred years. And But that's, that t- gets us off into a totally different subject. But what we see here is this process of how the Pharaoh came to be such a totalitarian leader. And it's a result of Joseph's skill as the administrator of Egypt. Well, as we come down to chapter 48 and 49, chapter 48 describes the blessing that Jacob gives his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who will stand in the place of Joseph. So they become two of the tribes. Manasseh will be one tribe, Ephraim another tribe. Joseph is not a tribe at all. And then in chapter 49, Jacob gives a final blessing or in some cases cursing to his sons. There is a prophecy related to each of the twelve tribes. And then Jacob dies and he is buried. He is taken back to the field, the cave of Machpelah, back in the land of Canaan, where he is buried next to Abraham and Isaac and the uh, Sarah and uh, his mother Rebekah. Then in chapter 50 we're told about the mourning for, for Jacob and Joseph, uh, 
reassurance of his brothers and forgiveness for his brothers at the end of the chapter. There, now that uh, Jacob is dead, they, they believe that Joseph is finally going to execute his vengeance, and he comforts them and says, uh, Don't be afraid, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That governs Jacob's action, I mean, Joseph's actions. And then we have Joseph dying at the end. Verse 22, So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. Joseph lived 110 years. And then Joseph died, verse 26, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So the book that began in the beginning God created ends with the phrase, in a coffin in Egypt. And there's no resolution at the end of Genesis. We're left hanging. So we'll have to see if I decide whether or not to go into the book of Exodus when we finish Genesis. But anyway, that's our overview of Joseph. It is a picture of divine providence. God is not visibly active in these 14 chapters, but he is the one who is working behind the scenes to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he is protecting the people in order to prepare them for the future that he has for the nation. So next time we'll come back and we'll begin a more detailed study in Genesis chapter 37. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together to be encouraged by these things, to know that you pay attention to every detail in our lives and in your providential care we are we are provided for and you and all things work together for good because you are working them together for good in our lives as believers and that we can relax and trust in you even in the midst of famine, in the midst of adversity, and in, even in the midst of prosperity, we are to relax and trust in you. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.